Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, you amazing people. It's a Friday, mates, and that means a weekend of relaxing, chilling, and having a blast. Right now, I'm drinking one hell of a drink, ginger and honey, and yikes, it packs a punch. I always find the ginger overpowering in these drinks, but I always remember it's good for you. Still, can't escape the shiver from the strength of that ginger. Do you guys and girls get that? It's like when you drink tea that's been steeping for 15 minutes. It's like a black tea bomb of flavor. If you weren't awake before, you would be then. <laughs> Mates, today I'm going to bring you the final part of Laser Tag by DigiGecko, where we find out what goes wrong and what happens next. So, without further ado, Turn the lights off, the sound up, and get ready for something different. The last thing I took note of was that in the middle of the target circle was a slightly bigger red dot, which had a flat head, unlike the dome tops of the other lights. Its color was also a bit darker, as if it was wearing out. But both vests were identical in this regard, so I paid a little mind. We couldn't find a sheet of instructions anywhere, and my dad still had some hesitations, although the system did seem to work fine. We tested all the guns and vests, and dad even went back to his car a second time to fetch one of the cheap plastic hitboxes from the other seats that had what looked like orange traffic barricade lights for their sensors. Again, Everything was cross-compatible. It looked like it was a done deal once we found the faded, peeling price tag. It was $20 for the complete set. It seemed like a really good bargain. This is where you might expect the person ringing us up to see the object in question and say something cryptic, or give us a frightful or glad to have that out of here look. But the old lady at the register was clearly tired and ready to go home. And any other time, she probably wouldn't have known anything about the toy in any case. Dad paid for it, and we were out of the store just as it was closing. The next day, Saturday, I knew would be awesome. At the twins' house after lunch, I revealed the sets, and they were excited by the whole idea of having our own laser guns. The foreign sets, of course, took the spotlight over the regular American ones. Brian suggested that we do some rock, paper, scissors to see who would get to use them. But after a debate, in the end, I claimed one of them, having been the one to find them. We had to compensate a bit since the foreigns didn't have backpack units, making sneak attacks from the rear impossible on its wearers. This would be a huge disadvantage to the others, so we simply kept the American set's rear hit packed inside. It was sort of lame only being able to land an official hit on someone's front side, which meant waiting for them to simply turn around to actually kill them, if you weren't talking behind them, but we would deal with it. Nick was a little offended at first after I explained the reason he should get the other. He usually died first, the most often, and was a lousy shot. Quite an accomplishment considering the accuracy of imagined slugs, but his brother Peter agreed with the handicap, and with that, we were off for a day of team death matches around the neighborhood. Gil and Brian were in my team the first time, and we kicked ass with a solid score of 3-0. to zero. 
After that, I took Nick and Devon, so both of the old sets were on a single team. Devon got taken down, but Nick and I were untouched by a long-range ambush that took place on one of the block's curves. That was the first indication that these old sets were really of higher quality, or at least more powerful than the others. While Devon shot three or four times before he was hit, none of them made impact on Peter, Brian, and Gil. But the guns that Nick and I had took out the entire enemy team, one right after the other, after we took a second to steady our aim. After a third game, we realized that having two boys with the old sets on one team gave them an unfair disadvantage. Having skimmed the manual for the American toys, I remembered reading how sunlight could interfere with the laser. That made sense, but it seemed like the advertised 200 feet range was also a lie in the first place, as Gil reported that he had to get within about 50 feet to land a hit with his grey plastic gun. The black ones, however... Well... We took a break to figure out the range by doing a few tests, having Brian back up about 10 feet until Peter's hits with my black gun no longer registered. He had to be clear across the block, some 500 feet away, and even then in direct sunlight, until his vest stopped buzzing. We all thought once again about just how cool the things were, but I was a bit unsettled. They felt too powerful, as if they were industrial lasers embedded in the black guns that kids should have no business playing with. What if we hit someone in the eye? But to the others, the pistols had basically turned into sniper rifles. Sure, we still had to be accurate at long range, but we could land a hit from much further away than seemed normal. The discovery of the foreign set abilities changed the game dynamic. Suddenly, Nick and I were deemed permanent squad leaders. We were the specialists, meant to be feared. That was when Peter started asking me to switch up gear with him. I told him he could have my set tomorrow, but after a few more games, he started whining and bitching about it. At 3 o'clock, we broke for snacks, soda, and water to replenish ourselves. We had played long and hard so far and the other people in the neighborhood had taken notice of our antiques. But we were having too much fun to notice or care what they thought of us. Being a nice guy, I relented and told Peter he could have my set for the next round of games that would last until we called it an evening. He had the best aim, and a manacle little grin spread over his face as he no doubt wondered what it would be like pulling off miracle shots as a professional sniper would. The thing was, though, Nick and I couldn't get the vests off. We tried everything, but the buckles were oddly configured like little bastards. We couldn't even tell if we weren't pressing the right thing down on them, or if we had to wriggle them a certain way, or if it was the friction caused by the rust that locked them in place. We eventually gave up and had our indoor snack break with them still on, looking like dorks, somewhat to the amusement of the others. Even though I couldn't get my vest off, I still traded guns with Peter. That seemed good enough for him. Holding the cheap grey plastic in my hand, I knew it would take a little while to get used to its limitations. As the day wore on and cooled a bit with the setting sun, I started taking my first hits without the advantage of longer range, and I really began to notice the strange quirks of the vest. For one, it was uncomfortable. The leather straps that went over my shoulders and around my stomach would have been comfortable if they weren't so tight. 
On top of this, the metal plate on the back side of the heat detection unit pressed tightly against the skin. It was cold, never warming to my body temperature. Also, once I took a hit for the first time, I could feel a small tingle of electricity come from the back plate. It was really small, however, less than that of a static shock. I didn't even notice it most of the time, but it was there. I couldn't tell if it was deliberate, like some sort of failing impact feedback or more like something bigger, being contained but leaking out ever so slightly each time a laser strand was close enough to being detected by the circle in front. But the oddest thing of all were the power lines nearby. They were old and buzzed often in cycles, but whenever I drew near them, they seemed to either buzz louder or started buzzing if they weren't quiet at the time. I had learned about electrical fields in science class that last year of middle school and thought that something in the hitbox must have been causing some sort of interference, but I didn't really think about how powerful that battery would have been to do such a thing. I did, however, begin to feel unsafe hauling it around. And thinking back, I suddenly remembered the moment my dad had turned it on for the first time in the store. I thought nothing of it back then, but when he did that, the fluorescent light above us flickered just briefly. I had grown up with a fear of electricity. Outlets had always scared the crap out of me as a kid, as if simply touching any part of it would electrocute me. A gut feeling told me something was wrong with this toy. I now wish I'd said something, or called off the game completely. After the first game following snacks, when I let the other team use both of the black guns, and then we got creamed, Peter gave us his brother Nick to even the score. He joined Devon and I after the 60 second countdown that was used to get the team separated from one another. We headed out, decided to go on patrol instead of making a base this time, as Devon never liked to sit around and wait for opposition to find us. Peter's team must have been doing a good job at hiding, because we couldn't find them after two sweeps of the block. We looked behind every one of our houses, covered the adjacent block, and still found no sign of them. It was a good idea to separate the team a bit so it wasn't taken down in a single ambush, but I always hated breaking up completely and going on patrol alone. But Peter and his sneaky bastard gang wanted to play things this way so we had little choice but to separate and cover more ground. I checked to make sure that Devon and Nick had their walkie-talkies set to the proper channels, and we headed our separate ways. Now alone, my senses heightened. I could feel the beads of sweat on my forehead, and hear the faint buzzing on the dropping power lines. It was quiet, and the air was still. Everyone in the neighborhood had gone inside, getting tired of the round. I started walking down the middle of the streets, putting myself in the open. If someone moved to take a shot at me, I might react in time, maybe not. It was after all just a game and I was growing impatient and wanted them to come out. I got my wish. As I walked down the empty street just in front of my house, Brian leapt out of some bushes, took aim at me and fired. I heard the buzz, felt the tingle and locked down to see the red lights disappear. 
proud of his kill, Brian smiled and walked over to me. Despite being a bit pissed off that his team decided to hide like pussies this round, I still thought of a little compliment to give to him, but it never left my mouth. Just as he stepped in front of me, I heard a loud pop in the distance. It sounded electrical, like a transformer had just blown. At the time, our two walkie-talkies let out a little but brief burst of static. Brian and I looked around, maybe expecting to see sparks raining down from a power pole or something. We waited for a few minutes, still out in the open, Brian staying with me despite being on the opposite team. The pop had taken us out of the game, startled us. We eventually settled down again and we got ready to part ways. Brian back into a hiding spot, myself to the dead zone. But then, God, that horrible smell. I knew what it was, I think everyone does. That stinging stench of an electrical burn. It's similar to dust burning off in a heater. But whereas that aroma is almost pleasant in a way, an electrical burn is a threatening smell you never want to experience. The last time I had was when our microwave practically exploded last year, which was unpleasant. With the possibility of a fire being nearby, we dropped the game and, using Brian's walkie-talkie, tried to get in touch with Peter and Gil. We got no response the first few times we tried to contact them. But on the fifth try, some feedback suggested that someone on the other end was holding down the transponder button. No one the other end spoke. But we still heard something. Brian had to turn up the volume all the way to hear it. <laughs> Faint. Sobbing. Worried for our friends, we ran off together, scouring the neighborhood. It took us ten minutes to see Devon, who had spotted us first and was waving us down from the edge of the borderline of the playing field, the farthest possible sidewalk on the last block of the neighborhood, stepping out onto the road from it made you dead. At least, if anyone else were to see you do it. We rushed over to him and saw Gil examining this sharp incline by the side of the road, where a storm drain feeds runoff water down into a ditch-like area that was often muddy. It was also overgrown with weeds and vines that climbed up the nearby cedar trees, which condensed into an ugly little forest typically occupied by drunks and garbage. For reasons we never really understood, this area on the edge of our battlefield was Nick's favorite hiding spot. He would sometimes still be in the ditch, eyes peeking out at street level after the entire opposing team was already dead. Next to Gil was Peter, in a way I'd never seen him before. He was in a state of shock, rocking back and forth very gently in a fetal position. I asked everyone what had happened, but Gil wasn't around at the time and knew nothing about it. Peter had yet to say a word. Nick was nowhere in sight. I tried to coax an answer from Peter, but he just looked back at me with saucer eyes. When I started shaking him and demanded to know what had happened, he murmured something. But it was so quiet. He might as well have had just mouthed it silently. To this day, however, the closest thing I can think of as to what he said would be, I saw him. I shot him. My stomach dropped. Peter didn't give me a straight answer, but I still had a deep and increasing worry that something terrible 
had happened to Nick that maybe the hitbox had electrocuted him. It was morbid, but that's the conclusion my mind had instantly leapt to. Gil, Brian, Devon, and I searched the area, sinking into the mud on occasion. I sniffed the air, smelling the electrical burn again. Every second that passed by that we didn't find Nick in pain, or worse, was a small relief. We didn't find the trace of him at all. Until we started heading back to Peter. Hidden in some of the overgrowth on the incline, their red color now indistinguishable in the grass, were Nick's shoes. Gil looked at them closer, but when he tried to pick them up, Peter suddenly shouted, Don't touch them! Gil abided by the request. Panic overtook the four of us that were still in reality, and we quickly ran to Devon's house, the closest to our current position, and told his parents they finally called the police when we managed to convince them that we weren't pulling a prank, and we really couldn't find Nick. The rest of the day was hell, but at least it went by quickly. The police arrived, as did everyone's parents. Peter's father took him home, as he was too traumatized to help the officers in any way. As more cops arrived, we explained everything about what we were doing. One of the cops even mentioned how he had noticed us earlier that day while on patrol. A search party started around sunset, and all the while, we were stuck outside in the heat, sweating like crazy on the side of the roads as our hearts raced. The police had little to go on, and no witnesses other than Peter, who they knew they would need to talk to right away. I was the first one to suggest to them to find the hit center box and gun from the laser set. That made them a little curious. I explained the devices as much as I could, even the tingling I felt. They may have concluded that the toy sounded dangerous, but still, it was just a toy. Nevertheless, they decided to take the foreign set in for further investigation. I had no arguments. After what might have just happened to Nick, I wanted nothing to do with the set anymore. Or for that matter, laser tag or guns. I knew the game, in whatever form it could have taken after this day, was tainted now. They quickly found Peter's gun dropped in the tall grass right by where he had been sitting. Nick's was discovered soon after, not far from his shoes. But even with their help, I couldn't get my vest off. The damn thing felt like it was permanently strapped to my body. It finally took Devon's father bringing a pair of metal shears from his garage to get the box off me, and he had to work to cut through the thick leather straps. But at least I was free. Safe. The police took the device and began their search for the other. Only, like Nick, they never found it. Over the following weeks, they combed the entire area for both the hitbox and its wearer, even dredging up mud to see if it had sunken into it. I began to have visions of it, exploding in a bright nuclear fireball, vaporizing Nick. But I kept the nightmares to myself. The twins' parents must have suffered more than I did, and I knew it was my fault. Despite all the assurances that day, and the ones that followed from the police, Nick was never found. His disappearance made the local news, and then the state news. No suspects were ever named. Every time I walked by the missing children board in Walmart, I saw his face, haunting me, staring at me above the description and the number to call. I saw the poster hanging for years, until I went off to college and left my old town and friends behind, all of which were irrevocably shattered by the incident. 
In my senior years, I came out for winter break. By now, I had invented that reality I mentioned earlier. I shoved the idea of the laser tag toy killing him out of my mind. Coming to believe, like the town did, that Nick had ended up as just another vanished or abducted child that would never return. Coming home, I had a flashback of his funeral, two years after he disappeared, where I was unable to look at his parents or Peter in the eye from across Nick's empty casket. The past didn't stay dead. When I came home, my mother told me in a shallow voice that Peter had been calling recently, asking for me every other day. She told me I should go see him. I didn't want to, but of course, I had to. I walked over to his house, where he still lived with his parents. The place had gone to hell. The paint was peeling off, the grass was so tall that trees could have been sprouting, and once I was let in, the smell of alcohol was nearly overpowering. With as much motivation as a zombie, Peter's dad rejoined his wife on the couch, where they both lifelessly watched the television. Even eight years later, Nick's death had left a scar on the household. I trudged upstairs and into a dirty, crowded mess of what was once a big living room. The place would have fit right in an episode of Hoarders. And here's a foreboding detail. Buried under a trash bag of beer cans that was blocking the television, I could see a Nintendo 64 on the floor. As crazy as it sounds, it must have been unused ever since that day, as Nick's golden eye copy was still plugged into it. This place reeked of despair. I desperately wanted to leave, but if Peter wanted to talk, if he had answers, then I had to meet with him. He was in his room, also a disaster area. Empty energy drink cans lined the floor. I could see that he had grown an unruly beard before he turned around in his computer chair after exiting some MMORPG that I was unfamiliar with. I greeted him as kindly as possible. I could see his sadness in his sunken eyes, but what he was really hiding was his anger. When he spoke to me, it was in what I can only describe as restrained barks. He must have had nothing but hatred for me, which I didn't blame him for, that he was struggling to control. Suddenly, he started laying everything out there, getting it off his chest at long last. His parents had been sending him to a therapist for eight years since that day, and he said that while she helped and he was making slow progress, he hated the bitch inside because she didn't believe him when he shared his account of the events. He then told me that he had just started going to a psychiatrist and hoped that he would believe him. Understanding his anger and now feeling nothing but pity, I talked with him calmly and reasonably. He eventually did relax some after getting out all of the contempt he had for me. He took a big breath and his whole body shuddered as if in the anticipation of a forthcoming grand revelation. That was just what I got, as much as it hurt. The truth at last, and that dreaded vindication I mentioned at the start of our story. I never returned to his house that day to retrieve the box, assuming that the police would have taken it. But I watched as Peter reached deep under his bed, the space looking like an unnavigatable garbage dump and pulled out that black box that I'd seen in my dreams many times. 
he took off the rotted, moist cover, a smell of mold exploding from the inside. But it was what he took out of the box that made me truly sick to my stomach. It was the missing hit sensor box. Only the frontal plastic shell had been clearly warped and scarred by extreme hate. It had partially melted over the black circle in the middle, and the leather straps were charred. Holding back vomit, Peter almost gleefully flipped the device over, as if in his damaged mind I was supposed to like what he was showing me. The metal back had mostly survived intact, but there was a large dent in the middle where it made contact with the battery. The hinge, however, no longer locked in place, and the back plate swung open freely to reveal the interior of the shell. There was no sign of the battery itself, its compartment was a solid black, and there seemed to be dried remnants of battery acid. I could only surmise that the battery had exploded in its entirety, however much energy it had inside must have been incredibly lethal. Justin? Peter suddenly shouted at me, snapping me out of my dazed, sickly stupor. He then proceeded to call me an idiot repeatedly for not reading the instructions. I whimpered in reply, telling him I didn't see any. In one broad stroke, Peter tore out the styrofoam, which I noticed had already been broken into several pieces. Under what remained of the fractured white block was a thin, yellowed pamphlet. The guns were printed in black and white on the cover. Now, both terrifying and wrecking me with guilt, he began to shove the moldy instruction book in my face, thrusting it until it was a few inches in front of my eyes. Each time he turned a page as he yelled at me to read it. Read it. Although I was shaking, Go on. I tried my best to do so. Read it. Most of the instructions were in Arabic, but there were little warning boxes labeled with exclamation points in a triangle that were in multiple languages, including French, Spanish, and English. Every page had an image of proper use. The boys from the box cover demonstrating various ways of hitting one another with the lasers, or simply how to attach the equipment. Other than a few instructions of the radioactive trefoil symbol, the warning seemed innocuous at first. Don't aim at the eyes, take a break from playing sometimes, don't use it in the rain, etc. I told Peter I didn't understand what went wrong. I knew enough by this point that he had figured out what killed Nick, and he had hidden his brother's vest in the box. I told him I'm so very, very sorry, but again, that I didn't understand. Before he showed me the last page, Peter said he kept the burnt, twisted vest so he could figure out what happened on his own. Maybe he thought the police wouldn't be able to. I can't hope to know. Calmer now, he turned to the last page and handed me the book. My stomach churned. The warning was simple, and like the rest of the product, poorly translated. Danger. Critical hit zone. These words were under a diagram of the black hit circle, where an arrow pointed to a small center light, and there was a descriptive image of one of the boys shooting the other, a demonic smile and a look of victory on his face as he so happily sent the other boy from the box cover into oblivion. The other boy, who was screaming out in raw pain and terror as his vest exploded and his body turned into fine particles of ash, but Peter wasn't done. He had one last thing to show me, as he reached for the top of the bookcase in his room. I noticed the faint scratch marks on the metal backing of the destroyed hitbox. It looked like someone had taken a screwdriver to it in order to violently scrape something off. Peter showed me a small, corked plastic vial 
that he had taken off of his shelf. Instead was the solid black gathering of what appeared to be soot. He gave me a sickening smile and told me, It's been a long time since you've seen Nick, hasn't it? Say hi to Nick. I felt myself heave and hit the floor, but nothing came up. My mind scrambled, trying to accept what I had just seen and was told to imagine the fear, the pain, as my friend burnt up into ash so small that it blew away into a light wind, killed by his own brother, eagle-eyed Peter, who had scored a critical. Before I turned and ran out of the house, Peter, holding what was left of his twin brother, has some advice. I see a therapist, Justin. It will help. There. I got it all down. Happy, Dr. Strauss. Whether or not anyone reads this, I don't care anymore. Maybe in time, recording what happened really will help me. I don't know. What I do know is that for an entire day, I carried around what I assume was some sick, perverted Eastern European toy maker's idea of a fun game for the kiddies. A walking time bomb waiting for a bullseye hit. How all of its previous owners managed to miss, I have no idea. If you decide to hunt down another set for some sick dark fantasy, and you're stupid enough to buy it after reading this journal that some asshole stole and posted online, try not to play with anyone whose shot is worth a damn. Mates, I hope you enjoyed the final part of this tale. I can say hand on heart. I didn't expect one of the main characters to explode when using their toys. Turning into dust to float away in the breeze. Goodness. I can't imagine watching my friend or family member just evaporate in front of me with a single click. But let that reality sink in, mates. The costs of a click, a lifetime of torture, and a lifetime of regret. A story that as you dig deeper, the real ramifications of what actually took place hammers home, in which it appears to be a cruel weaponized child's toy that's effect would cripple a family and a community. There is a silent cruelty in that space, friends. One that isn't lost on me. Now, before I sign out, you epic peeps, first I want to thank my special living legends my Patreon supporters. First up, the Hamazon Maya, the supporter that straps his podcast to a rocket and screams go. Thank you so much, Maya, for setting the show to max speed and never looking back, mate. People like you are so very, very, very special. Much of the quality improvements to this podcast is thanks to your tier of support. And month by month, your support alone pays for subscriptions and more. You are one hell of a legend, Maya. Thank you. And my white tea warlords, Ion Cows and Lee Bauer, you two lovelies are epic. Thanks to you, I'm able to try out new technologies, new software tools, and also new equipment. Thank you both so much, mates. And of course, the blood that flows through this podcast veins, my epic Earl Grain forces, Chad Warren, Just Heather, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, Divided by Zero, Dolphin and Cow, Michelangelo Yacone, Tea Time Drinker 1, and Solstra. Mates, you peeps are the sweeps that put a pep in my step. Thank you all for your support. And lastly, 
I want to talk to you about a podcast I actually listen to. You know how I mentioned that I'd share podcasts every now and then that are actually interesting? Well, Fire Breathing Kittens is a podcast close to my heart. You won't know this about me, but I used to love playing D&D. I usually play rogues, thieves, sneaky peeps that get around undetected. I always enjoyed my adventures with the party. Dungeon and Dragons is what Fire Breathing Kittens play on their podcast, and when I used to play it, it allowed me to explore situations that are so different to what I would ever do in real life. It was a blast. Now these peeps are four people in total, three players and one dungeon master. A nice group size, and they traverse their treacherous world episode by episode, slicing goblins in half, literally in most cases, from the episodes I've listened to, or destroying giant creatures with a random 20 as a roll, simply shredding them in majestic fashion. For those of you who don't know the power that resides in a 20 dice roll, I was once a monk who rolled 20 for a critical, and I blew up a ship with a coconut. No joke. Like I said, Dungeons and Dragons is a lot of fun. Gotta say, this party reminds me of my old days, and I think you should take some time to listen to Fire Breathing Kittens, because you'll have a blast, mates. Mates, have a kick-ass Friday, and even kick-assier weekend. Stay awesome, and as always, till next we meet.